It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. On the show today, what is the nature of evil? We hear from a psychologist who studies morality in babies and a journalist who interviews terrorists. How can their perspectives explain why people do evil deeds? Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events held by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival, held in June 2017. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. When you make a moral choice, how much of what you decide is affected by emotions such as disgust, anger, and love? That's the question Yale psychologist Paul Bloom attempts to answer in his research. He also studies evil. And I'm interested in contrasting theories of evil, looking at claims that one of the driving forces behind evil is dehumanization, but also looking at alternatives, that when we do our worst to other people, we do so by recognizing their humanity. While Bloom studies evil, journalist Graham Wood encounters it face-to-face. In his research for a book about ISIS, Wood read the terror group's propaganda and visited with its members. Whenever possible, I find people who are themselves part of ISIS or who are, are so sympathetic that they just can't contain themselves and must speak to a journalist. Wood, who's a correspondent for The Atlantic, describes how he's had pleasant conversations with ISIS members who seem normal, and yet their deeds like slavery, murder, and rape are horrifically evil. What explains this? And what about more low-level sins like lying, faking, or cheating? Is it enough to define evil as having a sense of right and wrong? Paul Bloom starts with a question for Wood. I've read your article in The Atlantic, uh, What ISIS Really Wants, and I read your book. And your book involves these detailed conversations with what I see as just the worst people in the world, people who are advocating my murder, the murder of everybody I love, people who um, will kill you if the circumstances are right, who advocate for slavery, for rape, for everything evil in the world. And so the question which comes to me, partially as a scholar, but partially just as a regular person, is what's it like talking to these people? Uh, I hate to break it to you, but it's not too different from talking to Paul Bloom. Um, (laughs) They're pleasant people to talk to. They're intellectually curious. And the way that you describe them is, uh, except for the word evil, exactly how they would describe themselves. When, they say, when you say that they advocate slavery, genocide, the killing of me and everyone I know, everyone you know, everyone that most of the people in this room would know, that's what they say too. And the, the conversations, um, I, it, it, it may sound like an exaggeration to say it, but I, I assure you it is not. These are pleasant conversations in a way because they are, uh, they're, they're engaged and they're engaged intellectually in a way that, that's, that's actually quite pleasurable for, for someone who, uh, like I think anyone in this audience, would, would be interested in ideas. And then on a personal level, um, they can be funny, they can be sad, they have, as far as I could tell, the same range of human emotion that I would expect from anyone else I talk to. So they're not cold-blooded psychopaths. They're not monsters. You don't cringe when you see them. They're not Hannibal Lecter types. And they're just regular, usually guys, not often women. Um, 
And so, so then characterize the difference. Because when you talk to me, I don't advocate slavery and rape and extermination and so on. So what makes them different from me? Yeah, so in, in some ways, um, you know, if you were to just enumerate the positions, you would have first ballot Hall of Fame evil agenda in front of you. And then the discussion is somewhat different. They have a, a, a way, I think, of, I mean, the whole purpose of their talking to me was to translate their ideas to me. And that includes both just explaining what that agenda consists of, the genocide, the uh, sex slavery, and so on, but also trying to translate it morally. Every discussion they have is an attempt to recruit as well. And then for me, as a journalist, it's an attempt to use what I write as recruitment material. So the, the, I think what, what, what you find is um, that's different from a, like a normal back and forth that the two of us might have is that they are uh, engaged in a, in a kind of outreach that is uh, pretty sophisticated, I think, from the perspective of, of, of maybe from the psychology. They are trying to get me to understand something that they realize from the start, I think, is crazy. And so they have, they have little, little moves that they will make, arguments they will use. Um, they have a, a repertoire. They have material that they'll, that they'll, that they'll work into the conversation. Um, and they know that if they don't do this in a way that that's at least acceptable, like in a general sense of being pleasant to, to, to interact with, then it's not going to work. So being normal is, is part of their shtick. So, so there's a common sense notion of evil, which is that evil people lack morality. They lack a sense of right and wrong. And, and listening to you, it seems like that theory is exactly backwards. These people who I'm comfortable characterizing as actually evil not only don't see themselves as evil, but actually see themselves as on a moral mission. You know, um, I, when I was a kid in, in Montreal, I had a rabbi. Rabbi would talk my ear off about this and that, trying to make me a better person, trying to get me to believe in this, that, and the other. And, you know, it, the, 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 the interactions you have these members of ISIS where they won't lit up, they just kind of trying to convince you, like, if you, if you just listen with your heart, you'll realize they're right, sounds a lot like, kind of a bizarro version of my rabbi. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I think that, um, I, I don't know what your rabbi would think about that, but it, it's, it's true that, that they, have, they have no lack of a, a sense of that, that there is something that's right and wrong in the world. What they're trying to do instead is to just make me realize and everybody else realize that my version is simply flipped. It's, it's inverted. And I'll give you an example of how this, how this works in an actual technique that was used on me for recruitment. I spoke to an Australian named Musa Charantonio. He's about 30 years old, a convert, and had been asked by ISIS to be their official English language translator. And he, he's from Melbourne, Australia. He was in Melbourne when I spoke to him. And he said that when he was asked, uh, he said, I'll just do it pro bono because, um, you know, I, I, there could be legal consequences for me to be an official ISIS translator, but if I do it just for, for kicks, then I can't be prosecuted. He said to me, uh, have you ever seen the movie The Wizard of Oz? This was not a gambit that I expected an ISIS recruiter to use. The answer was yes, I had. And he said, well, look, think about what happened with Dorothy. Dorothy, we think of her as this picture of virtue who's fighting against, after all, the wicked witch of the West. But what did Dorothy do? She crushed an innocent woman with a house, and then stole her shoes. Don't you realize? Like, watch this film again, and you'll see that 
Dorothy is the evil one. The wicked witch didn't do anything wrong. And the point of this anecdote was, look, we all know this movie. We all have a common sense notion of what's good and evil. And we were wrong. So if you were wrong about whether Dorothy is good or evil or the wicked witch is good or evil, then might you not be wrong about every other idea of good and evil you have? This was this, this kind of, uh, the alt-right would call it a red pill moment where you find that every belief that you had was wrong and instead you should be uh, strapping on a bomb or, or, or something like that. And this is something which shows up in the psychological literature on, on you know, even, even um, serial rapists. When you ask them, you know, why are you doing this? They say, no, I, I'm not a bad guy. It's all okay. The women kind of like it. Um, you know, maybe, maybe they don't say they like it. And I've had a bad life myself. They have it coming to them. There's always this very natural human capacity to tell a narrative in which, you know, you, you red pill it. Everything you're doing is right. Everyone else is wrong about it. And you see this in individuals. In fact, I think we see this in a mild version in our own lives, you know, where, where many of us morally cut corners. And sometimes we say, I'm doing something wrong and I'm ashamed. But sometimes we say, we give it some deep thought and say, you know something? I'm not the bad guy here. I'm not, you know, yeah, I took money from, from my company, but I'll tell you, they have not treated me well. You have these moments where you flip perspective. And I guess you could say ISIS is the same thing, just on a grand scale. Yeah, I, I, I think, first of all, an extremely grand scale. I mean, at their height, they controlled the territory of, uh, with a population of 8 million people and were trying to go global. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Today's show is an examination of evil. Another Aspen Ideas to Go episode focuses on resilience. The human condition is one that, in the most extreme cases uh, of suffering and vulnerability, requires us to find our inner strength and our soul and whatever spiritual resources that we have. Andrea Mitchell of NBC News sits down with Atlantic Media Chairman David Bradley and Theo Padnos. Padnos is an American journalist who was held hostage in Syria by Al-Qaeda. The three talk about how to cope with disappointment, setback, and crisis. Find the episode by searching Aspen Ideas To Go in your favorite podcast player. There's also a link in our show notes. Now back to today's conversation. Here's Graham Wood. I wonder, though, whether you might talk a bit more in the general case about what, uh, what this looks like. You, you mentioned people are able to rationalize this to themselves. Is there, is there, is there a, like a general theory that we could look at that, that, would, that would describe not just ISIS, but serial rapists and other forms of evil that, that, that we might look at? It's, it's, it's a good question. I don't know the answer. I don't know if we're going to find a one-size-fits-all theory for evil, for the everyday evils that we all commit and some heavy-duty evils that some of us commit. But you could see the perspective change very easily in some laboratory studies. There's one you could do yourself, just about. Imagine yourself as... So here's part one. Take the case where somebody did something bad to you. Someone did something just awful to you, and you called them on it. So you, and then write it down. Describe it. 
remember it. Then we ask another group of people, take a case where you did something bad to somebody, where they, they called you out on it. Write it down, describe it. When psychologists do this, they find it's nowhere near symmetrical. When somebody does something bad to me, it was intentional, it was evil, it was sadistic, it had lasting effects, and it needs to be retaliated, or at least a serious apology. But when I do something bad to somebody, it wasn't my fault. I was forced to do it. My intentions were good. I was hungry. You know, it's just a bad day. And I'm sure the person will get over it. It's no big deal. There's this, and then they do experiments where they have people do these things to each other. And there's this figure ground reasoning. We have ex we're extremely powerful rationalizers. But I'm not sure if that's the same thing that goes on with you guys. I, I think it might be. It sounds like ISIS may have actually read the same psychological literature that you're citing. It, and you know, in their propaganda, they know that some of the things they've done are, are wrong. And they know it on a couple of different levels. They, you know, Musa Cerantonio, in the first conversation I had with him, we saw some other ISIS supporters walk past on the street, his friends. And he said, look, these people, um, they're my friends, they're my brothers, but they really revel in the bloodshed. They can't get enough of the beheading videos. And Musa said, I myself, I realize that they're necessary, but it just feels wrong to me. However, I support it 100%. And then on the, on the broader level of the propaganda, ISIS will, they will describe, um, they will describe slights against Muslims, uh, and it will, it will always be exactly as you say, the, the absolute worst interpretation or least sympathetic interpretation, most pessimistic or cynical interpretation of, uh, of, of things that are done against ISIS. But anything they do, including things that traditionally have been um, rejected by, by most Muslims, they will very rapidly be able to find a justification for it. And these justifications, they, they sometimes are justifications that have been used in the past. But wow, they'll become incredibly uh, efficient uh, miners of the juridical history of Islam to find the rationalization that has been used maybe f once 500 years ago for, say, burning someone alive, something that, in, in general, Muslims will say is uh, fire is, is, according to one saying of the Prophet Muhammad, is limited to uh, use by God as a punishment. Men cannot do this, but they'll find it. They'll find a way. But that's, that's what I'm having. That, that example speaks to what I'm having problem swallowing. So the sort of examples I was thinking about is, you know, I drive the car and I drive it all the way back home, but I don't fill it up with gas, so my wife is stuck with it. Those low-level sins. Okay, fine. Adultery, a bit of faking data here. Not me, but, uh, but, <laughs> but, but that kind of thing. But burning somebody alive, I guess I would just think that taking sex slaves, burning people alive, that any narrative you tell would clash against basic principles of what we all possess and how people are raised. So there's so much to fight against when you, when you do that, such a thing. I, I think it helps to, to remember the context of the larger set of beliefs that ISIS is trying to inculcate in people. Now, remember, ISIS, in addition to being a organization that, that is in favor of all these horrible things, is also apocalyptic. It is claiming that there will be a very specific and, you know, to my, to my eyes, just bizarre opera of events that will take place pretty soon. So 
it's not as if there are aspects of the ISIS program that feel normal. They're all meant to be accentuating the weirdest things, the things that are most difficult for an ordinary person to, to understand. So it, it, to ask them to, to, to listen to that voice of conscience that they might have is to ask them to forget pretty much everything that they, that they hear when they're listening to ISIS propaganda. It's not, it's, not a, it's not a strange maneuver for them to have to make to justify something as horrible as the immolation of a Jordanian guy in a cage. Would you say that without the apocalyptic beliefs, you couldn't have ISIS because you wouldn't have the right narrative to justify these actions? You know, the, 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 there are certainly supporters of ISIS who do not emphasize the, the apocalyptic side. I don't think it's coincidence, though, that, that you know, the ISIS magazine is called Dabik, which is a city in Syria that is of no consequence whatsoever, except that there's supposed to be a big battle between good and evil there. Same thing with their, their Arabic language news source. Amak is named after a valley that no one cares about, except that it's foretold to be the, the site of prophecy. And eventually they do talk about things that are, are like downright supernatural. People who walk the earth with the word infidel written across their, their foreheads, and even illiterate people and children can read this if they are Muslim, but they cannot if they're not. So this is, this is a whole set of beliefs that I, I think that they, they really do try to find the, the strangest things. And if you can get someone to believe this, then everything else is easy. It's getting that first moment, which, you know, I use this phrase, red pill. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie The Matrix, but there's this moment in it where Keanu Reeves takes a red pill rather than a blue one, and after that he realizes he's been, he's, he's been enslaved by aliens for all his entire life and everything changes. That is what I think the initial belief is of something that is absolutely bizarre. So I have to ask something. The people join ISIS from Europe and less frequently from the United States. And if it's not ISIS, there's other groups as well that are, including, including say, um, the alt, alt-right and white supremacists and so on. So I have two, two teenage sons, as you know. I'd like to hope that they don't end up joining ISIS or something like that. What characterizes those kids who would? Those kids, if you had to make a prediction, he, he's, a, he's a target. He will do it. What would be the characteristics of such a, an adolescent? Uh, I, I think the the psych profile that we might look at is that of a seeker, someone who finds everyday life inadequate. And this is why you sometimes see, especially in Europe, people who have few job opportunities and so on, that they don't have families in most cases, and some they do. They don't have jobs. They have a lot of time to sit around and feel like the universe has shortchanged them and that there is meaning that is missing. This can't be all of it. This can't be all of what, what, what they have in this world. So I think your sons are probably okay. I, I, don't, I don't know them, but, you know. The, 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 the younger one. <laughs> there's a moment, though, that, you know, you, your kids are college age, yeah. and um, there's a time in mid to late adolescence where it's pretty normal to have existential questioning. And it's also pretty normal to move beyond that and to find some answers in family, work. You could name a, a, a long list of things that, that, that seem to work out. So if you find someone who is thwarted in all of these ways, who has no, no moment where, from when looking up from the normal adolescent abyss, there's nothing there. And then someone walks along and says, ISIS, that's it. Then wrong place at the wrong time, wrong type of seeking at the wrong time, and that person might 
be vulnerable. So the writer Joyce Carol Oates, a couple of years ago on Twitter, tweeted, um, all you hear about ISIS is brutality and terrible things, but is there any joy and meaning? And she got you know, really slammed for this, saying, how could you say such a thing? ISIS is 100% terrible. But then cooler commentators said, look, if it was that terrible, it would never get recruits. People would never join it. And what you're saying, I think, makes sense, which is there are certain itches that a group like ISIS scratches. And as a psychologist, I'm interested in this because it suggests we're not natural. There's more to life than a sort of simple hedonism where you seek basic pleasures. Many people, particularly young people, seek meaning. They seek deep connection and meaning and a long goal, which could involve pain and suffering and death. And it's why a lot of young people, particularly young men, want to go to war. And, 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 and why in our society, because they don't tend to go to war, they play an enormous amount of video games which simulate war. And which it, might be for the best. It, which, which certainly, yeah, which, which I think might be for the best. No one yet has made a video game, as far as I know, called ISIS. But it's possible it would sell very well. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, there are many people who have joined ISIS, including someone I'll be speaking about this afternoon, John Georgeless, who were very into video games, were very into their computer life, their second life. What happened with ISIS was suddenly the second life became the first life, and they made the flip from, from thinking about this in a kind of virtualized world to thinking it's happening in the real one. Thanks for listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. Coming up, psychologist Paul Bloom takes a question from the audience. Could you go back to some of your research on uh, children and perhaps also on uh, horrible criminals and share your thoughts on whether we're born evil or are we made evil by acts of others? That's a wonderful question. Um, My answer to the question is, you know, are we naturally good or naturally evil is yes. If you haven't yet subscribed to our sister podcast, Aspen Insight, do it now. The latest episode features a conversation about why today's Congress is so divided. It wasn't always that way. You'll hear from two former congressmen who sat on opposite sides of the aisle. Also, climate change is impacting how a Native American tribe in Alaska gets its main source of food. Hear how a teenager is working with national leaders to tackle the problem of melting sea ice. Find the show by searching Aspen Insight in your favorite podcast player. There's also a link in our show notes. Here's the rest of today's conversation. Graham Wood. Now, you mentioned the, the role of meaning, and I've mentioned the same thing. I'm curious, as a psychologist, how do you talk about meaning? The, this seems like such a, such a soft topic. It's, it's an existential kind of vocabulary that I think philosophers are used to, to using. But is it, is it something that psychologists can be talking about with, with any kind of precision or, or scientific uh, vocabulary? So it, it, it's a great question. There was a psychological view that was very common for a long time that just is a form of hedonism. That say you have certain appetites, sex, food, security, that, that, that you want to satisfy, and that's the good life. And we go through a lot of unpleasant things. We might do an unpleasant job, but we do that in order to, as instrumentally to get the things we really want. But more and more psychologists, I think correctly, are rejecting that view. As, and, and adopting more of a view associated with people like Viktor Frankl, who argues that um, from a study of, of survivors of concentration camps, he said those men and women who survived 
were those who had a bigger project in life. Roughly what Freud called, Freud had this lovely phrase, love and work. Love being a deep relationship. Work being a long-term project. And I think this is what we want. And I can give two quick examples. Um, one is mountain climbing, endurance climbing, which by all accounts, long-term endurance climbing, like Everest or something, is grueling, boring, excruciatingly painful, risky, but people have an appetite for it. And it's not that they have an appetite for it despite the suffering, but rather because of the suffering. Now, so many of you may not have done that sort of thing, but I bet some of you have kids. And child raising is the second example. <laughs> by, most, by, by almost all studies using converging data, for instance, the time you spend with your young kids is bad. You, there's beeper studies that randomly beepers go off. I know you have a young kid. Uh, beepers go off. And then you're asked, what are you doing? And how much are you enjoying it? And then we can figure out what people do and how much they like it. So people, if they're having sex, presumably they don't stop right away, but they, take, they, they get back to it and say, sex, I like that. If they're doing dishes, they say, D doing dishes, eh. When they're with children, it's very low. The pleasure given by children, on average, is very low. Another form of data is marital satisfaction. Marital satisfaction starts up here. You have kids, 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 teenagers, 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 teenagers. They leave the house. <laughs> Dan Gilbert said the only, uh, the only uh, symptom of uh, empty nest syndrome is increased smiling. Um, and yet, people describe, people describe having kids as the most meaningful and important aspect of life. So I think a psychology that appreciates the richness of humanity makes a distinction between pleasure and meaning and understands the, the manifestations of meaning, which could include joining ISIS. All right, so tell me a bit more about when you, when you have someone who's scoring high on the meaning index, does that mean the person simply has a higher propensity for being especially good or especially evil and the middle ground is, is empty? Or, or how, how does the meaning exactly fit into the likelihood of doing something that's horrible or doing something that, that and I, when I say horrible, I don't mean that the person himself thinks it's horrible, yeah. but that we would all agree is a very sinister activity. So different people will give you a different answer. Some people will say meaning is something typically intrinsically good. I don't believe that at all. I think the search for meaning, for structure, for long-term plans is morally neutral. So it could be, you know, saving the world. It would also be destroying it. It could be, um, it could be uh, uh, vanquishing your enemies or helping the homeless or whatever. It's just we have an appetite for this sort of thing. So the appetite, for instance, is, is most clearly satisfied by war. Um, I forget the author, but, but there's an author who wrote a book with the title, War is the Force That Gives Life Meaning. And that's, that is, he might have not meant it as a literal claim, but it, it, it is a claim of great wisdom. And in fact, the appetite for war is so much that good societies like ours work to sublimate it in so many different ways. Yeah, and I, I think that's what you find often in the case of ISIS supporters. You, and the people who would perhaps have been in the recruitment base for ISIS, you, you ask them if they have, um, say, the same theological beliefs as ISIS, but for a few crucial ones the same legal beliefs about the, the requirements of the religion, but for a few crucial ones. It often seems that, that what has 
made it so that they're not in Syria right now is because they have sublimated their ISIS-like beliefs toward ones that, that um, make them not just not evil, but good neighbors, people we would like yeah. to be associated with. That's a, that's a very common um, observation, I think. When people first meet someone who is, say, Wahhabi, We've, many of us have learned that the phrase Wahhabi means evil Saudi Osama bin Laden-like. In fact, you find that most Wahhabis agree with ISIS about many theological issues, many legal issues, and are great people to be around. I mean, they're not great to, to bring to a barbecue with beer and pork sausage, but in other contexts, they're fantastic Neither company. Neither my rabbi. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think about now we should turn to the audience for questions. Absolutely. I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the factors that go into recruitment from a level of trauma or isolation or historical factors like family ties being broken, uh, things like that, that that lead to this recruitment beyond the psychology you guys are discussing so far. Yeah, so I, I can speak about uh, um, how how this works with, with the people who ISIS is targeting um, to try to get them to... to convert to the ISIS mentality, either from a secular one or from a Muslim one, and then try to travel. Um, they do look for people who, as I say, they have something broken in their lives. There, there is some way in which the world that they're, that they're coming from is a boring one or one that, that simply will not fulfill what they view as their own destiny. And my favorite example of this, back in the day, before social media services really really clamped down on ISIS recruitment, you could actually watch the recruitment take place on Twitter. Two people would openly be having a conversation about whether one should go. One of them would be in Syria. One of them would be in, say, Birmingham, and whether the one in Birmingham should go and meet the one in Syria. And one of those conversations, it started with, what are you doing tonight? It's a Friday night. And the guy in Birmingham said, I'm going to go out with some of our friends for fried chicken. And the guy in Syria, he didn't say... ISIS is the way to go. He said, you're probably going to do that next week, too, and the week after that, and probably for the rest of your life. Will that really be enough for you? Is that going to be satisfying? Fried chicken? I don't think so. So I think they're looking for people with that sense, again, of a searching mentality and that weakness. What you're saying in this sounds like a sort of small switch theory of ISIS, because what you're saying could have been an answer to the question, what makes kids become religious Christians, or become Orthodox Jews, or Hare Krishna, yeah. or go to philosophy graduate school, or anything, anything sucking them into something uh, outside their life. And, and sort of what you're saying is, it just so happens that, there, that ISIS will have certain twists on this that will drive them, but it could have been anything. Yeah, it could have been that he looked up from his Twitter account and then saw an advertisement for a Mount Everest expedition. Yeah. It, but instead... It happened to be ISIS, and ISIS had uh, the strong advantage of being able to say, not only will this give you meaning, but it will be a fulfillment of your identity. Even if you're not an observant Muslim, you will be able to say, you know, I was born a Muslim, I am, this is my identity, and it will, this will be the greatest form of, of being who I am and what my, my ultimate destiny is. Um, it's, ISIS has the, those advantages over bungee jumping and, and, and so on, which, you know, they're, they're hard to overcome. Another question? Sure. Thanks very much. Um, could you talk about the concept of dignity and how that's constructed and um, how that plays into the uh, development of ISIS? Oh, and the development of ISIS. Uh, well, yes. So there, there is a strong sense of, of um, offense to one's 
humanity, and especially within, when one's humanity is conflated with the sense of one's religion. So I, I, I think that, yeah, that's a, a major part of it. Now, I think, Paul, you might have some comments on, on this, whether offense against dignity is, in general, something that, that is able to mobilize people to do things that they uh, are not um, otherwise willing to. So I, I've been involved in a lot of developmental research and adult research concerning um, our response to inequality. And one of the findings that shows up from both studies of societies and studies of individuals is that inequality, per se, doesn't bother people. It doesn't bother people to have some people make more money than others, to have some people make more resources than others. It doesn't even seem to have any corrosive social problems. What really bothers people is unfairness. And unfairness and inequality often go hand in hand. And what bothers people about unfairness, ultimately, I think, and this connects to your question, is that to be treated with a lack of respect, not to be given their due. Many theories of development focus on base pleasures and getting more and, and you know, but so much of our psychology is driven by a desire to be treated properly and morally. My colleague at Yale, Tom Tyler, talks about how organizations work and what matters so much more in people's satisfaction in an organization, uh, more than money, more than vacation hours, it's whether they believe they're treated with respect. And I think this holds true for a society more generally. All right, on this side. I'm uh, coming to the conclusion later in life that religion causes as much harm as it does good. And as I view what's occurring today with ISIS, I see it as comparable to what the Crusades did a thousand years ago. It was a religiously spurred slaughter of people that were different of a different religion. This may be outside the purview of what we're talking about today, but if you have any comment, I'd like to hear it. Yeah, I I do have a quick comment. I I would say, first of all, um, we should think of religion as a pretty broad topic. Religion actually encompasses, in in my view, a very wide range of human activity. And ISIS is certainly one of those, is a religious phenomenon in the sense that they are thinking about the nature of good and evil, about what is happening first and last in this universe, what God wants. So yes, ISIS is a religious phenomenon and an extremely destructive one. I, I think, though, that, that um, first of all, there are other religious phenomena that are not so destructive. And the analogy that you propose to the Crusades, um, I might suggest a different one. I think that ISIS is more like a Reformation. And the Reformation, also extremely bloody process that left an entire region of the planet bathed in blood. ISIS is proposing to reform Islam, and it is uh, certainly no less aggressive and uh, inflexible in the way that it's doing that uh, than some of the more extreme elements of the Protestant Reformation in Christianity. I I could take that question, take it kind of in a more general way, because it's an extremely interesting issue. There's been a lot of debate and research over the relationship between religion and morality. And the answer is going to be unsatisfying in that it's very complicated. So, for instance, in the United States, religious people are far more generous than non-religious people and atheists. They give more to charity, including non-religious charities. They're more likely to give blood. They're more likely to help the homeless. 
On the other hand, when you look at different countries, the more religious a country is, on the whole, probably the worse it is in all sorts of social ills. And so it's hard to pull all of this together. One, one I think if I was going to defend religion, and I myself am an atheist, so it's a funny position to find myself in, I would argue that part of that, that religion has two ingredients that actually can make it a powerful force for good. One is community. So the American finding with charity finds that it, religious belief doesn't matter at all for how generous you are. It's connection to religious community. Mosque, church, synagogue. That's what drives your generosity. But the second one is religion can provide, can scratch the itch, the search for meaning we're talking about. Now, if it's you know, violent fundamentalist religion, no, it definitely makes the world much worse. But religion comes in many different flavors. And if I, if I had encountered an adolescent seeker of the sort you're describing and directed him to many churches, I think the world would be a much better place. He'd be fine. Thanks. I'm curious in sort of between the literature and the history and your modern experience with ISIS, if you've started to come to some conclusions on how you combat this, because it seems like there is an element of some of the reality probably is flipped. Some of the things that we think of you know, as being Dorothy or perhaps us being the witch or vice versa. Um, and you have these seekers who are likely to be there, that psychology to be there kind of throughout time. So, you know, given what we know about people, what you guys have seen, about people's propensity to follow these groups, like how do you think we're be- we should best combat them? All right, I'm going to give you another unsatisfying answer here. Um, and it relates to my answer to the previous question. Again, ISIS I think of as a world historical phenomenon. The Reformation in Christianity was something that that one might argue is not even finished. The Reformation in in Islam, also something with such important um, ramifications, such a complex relationship to the rest of the world, with politics, economics, with the rise of literacy. You could go on and on. It is not something that we can really affect uh, with any short-term means. So I, I think the first thing we need to realize is that we need to have a, a certain amount of humility about that. Um, that said, there are uh, systemic improvements that the world could have that would address some of the topics that Paul and I have been dis- discussing. The ability to find meaning in things that are not genocidal, I think, is something that we should hope there is more of in the world. You know, if if there are large numbers of people in any part of the world who are looking around and seeing ISIS as the answer to that existential need, then we would hope that those societies would be changed in a way or change themselves in a way that would allow them to, 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 to see alternatives to that. Um, but again, that's, like a, that's a very big problem. That, that's creating free, open societies, societies with characteristics that really were just getting to know what those characteristics that might be that would, would, would give meaning. And I would add, governments. Governments generally have not been great at creating meaning, except in some cases of governments that we wish had created less meaning, for perhaps, like the Third Reich. So, you know, I, I think we need to think carefully about what, what is actually going to be able to displace the, 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 the need for an ISIS-like like meaning, and it's not going to be an easy solution. Yes, ma'am. Getting back to the topic of evil, could you identify less overt acts of evil 
as evil, i.e., for example, the Republicans trying to pass a health law that takes away health care from millions of people. Is that, would that be considered an act of evil? Do you want to take a point? So, in some way, I, I see where that question is going. Uh, <laughs> I figure, figured it out that there's kind of a... In, in some way, that speaks to part of the problem with the language of evil. I mean, we don't mind the language of evil. We're, on, we're talking about evil. We're using them fluidly. And, but the problem is that, that um, evil in its folk expression, its most powerful expression, refers to sort of terrible things that are in some way knowingly evil. And you're speaking to sort of institutional evil. When, when Obama killed people with drones, was that evil? When, um, when, when every politician does cost and benefits, is that evil? I'm not certain. I'll, I'll, I'll ask, I'm not certain that that's the right question for us to ask. And I think, it's, I think in, in, a, in a democracy where we're trying to work to sort of come to solutions, I think it might be better to say, that's terrible policy. Or you're prioritizing the wrong thing. But I'd like to save the big guns of evil for the things that you're talking about and not so much point them towards our politicians. Um, and there's also a strategic aspect of that, too. So, you know, given who I am, um, my, my views on Trump and Republicans are entirely predictable. But I worry about a cultural change where all of a sudden it's no longer the case that, boy, I wouldn't vote for those guys. They're lousy. To they're evil, and therefore, what do you do with evil people? Well, you might kill them. That might be the only way to, to fight evil. So, and given the rise of political violence in our country, so far in some series of small events we both know about, but maybe growing, I, I, I'd like to be a force sort of toning down the rhetoric of it. Does that seem fair? On the one hand, you're saying tone down the rhetoric, rhetoric of evil. On the other hand, you're saying it's a fairly normal and common human process to do things that are evil or to rationalize things that are evil. So despite what you just said, do you think there are things that most of us do every day that we might reasonably call evil? It, it's a good thing to push me on. It, it might be, and you might have convinced me here, that there's no real difference between the sort of thing you're talking about, the sort of examples I gave, and ISIS, that there's no difference in kind. There's a difference in effect, but there's no difference in the psychological processes. So I might agree with that as a psychological or philosophical theory. I guess as a way we use language in everyday life, I'd like to reserve the term evil for things that have heavy-duty consequences. So, you know, taking a group of people as sex slaves, evil. Fudging, a scientist fudging her data, not evil. Bad. That seems reasonable. Um, sir, there with the glasses. Could, could you go back to some of your research on uh, children and perhaps also on um, horrible criminals and... Share your thoughts on whether we're born evil or are we made evil by acts of others. So that's a wonderful question. Um, my answer to the question is, you know, are we naturally good or naturally evil? Is yes. Um, in that, in that, what we find in our laboratory studies is even babies under younger than their first birth, they can't even speak. Favor good guys over bad guys can work to soothe the pain of others, 
can, can uh, uh, act in a good way. And this is, as far as we know, universal. Yes, there are differences in how prone babies are. We're all different people. And some of the differences start off, you know, before we're born. There are genetic differences in how kind we are and how gentle. But I think the foundations are with all of us. At the same time, though, we have other desires, too. We call evil desires, self-serving desires. And one of the, one of the things, I'm a psychological, I'm, I believe that there's a lot of stuff pre-wired in the brain for morality. I think that's a, a striking important finding. A lot of human goodness is built in. But, and this speaks to your question, I think our natural goodness is tragically limited. And in particular, we are so much prone to favor our in-group, our family, our friends, than other people. The idea of kindness to strangers, the idea that all of you, the life of somebody a thousand miles away you've never, you've never heard of has value, is a modern invention, a modern discovery, I'd rather put it. And it is, it is not bred in the bone. It is not natural. And so there are people who are sort of natural, who are Rousseauians, who believe that everybody is perfect, every child has perfect goodness. And if you just nurture it, the world will be better. And that's nonsense. Every child has some goodness, but the idea of being kind to those you don't know about, norms of fairness, the idea of the wrongness of racism and sexism and so on, are things that are hard-fought discoveries by, by, by people and need to be inculcated into kids. So it's a wonderful question, and, and I would say that we have components of both from the get-go. All right, last question. In line with that question, and I've been thinking about this during the whole topic, and, and that raises the question of goodwill and to what extent we have goodwill or we lack goodwill or goodwill is diminished either by innate things, DNA, or by our upbringing, wherever we were, or by circumstances at any given moment. It may be anger, fear, love, whatever. And so I, I guess the qu a question I struggle with is to what extent do we really have free will or how much free will do we have when we're dealing with you know, difficult questions? And if it is diminished, what does that say about morality? If it is diminished, then how immoral is an act? Is it really immoral if we don't have that much control over the, the, the particular action we're taking? And that's what I struggle with. All right, I will try, and then you get 20 seconds. Uh, so, um, the question of free will is in the terms that you put it, above my pay grade. Um, however, I will say that, that often when, when, when you speak to ISIS supporters, that they, they will remove from their own um, way of, the, of seeing the world any idea that they have any control over it. Um, it, is, it is an aspect of, of their willingness to do things that will literally destroy themselves that they believe um, in many cases, in all cases, that uh, you know, if... If, if God wills it, then it will happen. And I, I think to speak to the, to the general point of this session on, on good and evil, this is part of the disinhibition effect that ISIS tries to inculcate in its members, is the idea that, that, look, you've been told to do certain things. They may seem good. They may seem evil. But you've been told to do them. And if you do them or not, it's not really your choice. So uh, do them. And, um, and one thing I'll just, I'll just add to that is the notion of goodwill and good intentions is something which, which is a deep question. And, and lis listening to the discussion of ISIS here, from what I've read, um, and, and is 
we might be thinking about it all wrong, which is my temptation is to think that I have goodwill and good intentions. The monsters at ISIS who behead people are just psychopaths who like pain and death and they're just terrible people. And it's a shock to realize that they, when you talk to them, have good intentions. They want to make the world a better place. They want to bring a, 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 to satisfy an apocalyptic prophecy. And they believe that they are intensely, intensely good people. And so one ingredient of evil, I think, which we often find, even with true, honest-to-God evil, is the belief, I am doing the right moral thing. Graham Wood's book about ISIS is called The Way of Strangers, Encounters with the Islamic State. Paul Bloom teaches psychology and cognitive science at Yale. He's written several books, including Against Empathy, The Case for Rational Compassion. They spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival in June of 2017. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Follow Aspen Ideas To Go year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Killeen Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Brett Howley, Peter Kaplan, Jamie Miller, and me, Trisha Johnson. Our theme music is by Jim Brunsberg and Ben Landsberg of Wonderly. That's our show for today. Thanks for listening.